The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by DXC Technology. Let us show you the way to your digital future. Thrive on change. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, March 5th. In today's news, the U.S. health system is showing why it's not ready for a coronavirus pandemic. John Roberts rebukes Chuck Schumer, and a linguist for the Pentagon is charged with espionage. But first, the big idea. Mike Bloomberg dropped out of the presidential race yesterday and endorsed Joe Biden. Bernie Sanders, who lost 10 of the 14 state primaries to Biden on Super Tuesday, adopted a more aggressive tone with the former vice president. And Elizabeth Warren flew home to Boston to reassess her campaign weighing whether to end her bid and allow liberals in the party to unite behind Sanders the way moderates have coalesced for Biden. Biden and Sanders are now preparing to catapult their candidacies into a new round of contests over the next two Tuesdays, when 10 more states will vote and award nearly 900 additional delegates, a stretch that could determine the winner. Voter turnout in several states was dramatically higher on Tuesday than in 2016, with Democratic voters motivated to choose a nominee who they hope can unseat President Trump. But Sanders, whose campaign has long argued that it was expanding the electorate with new younger voters, conceded that had not happened. For months, Sanders has had trouble taking a sharp line against Biden, jabbing occasionally at him as if they were in a fight on the Senate floor rather than a brawl for the Democratic nomination. But the future of his candidacy now depends on whether he can trigger a seismic shift in how Democratic voters perceive the former vice president. Sanders, who has been criticized for the bullying and vitriol that some of his supporters employ on social media, reiterated yesterday that he does not want the campaign to turn into a Trump-type effort, as he put it, with personal attacks. He said he wants to keep his focus on Biden's record, from the Iraq war to supporting NAFTA, and Sanders alleges trying to cut Social Security, something Biden denies. Warren and Sanders spoke by phone yesterday. Their top surrogates and allies have discussed ways for them to unite and push a common liberal agenda with the expectation that Warren is likely to drop out of the race soon. The conversations, which are in an early phase, largely involve members of Congress who back Sanders, reaching out to those in Warren's camp to explore the prospect that Warren might endorse him. They're also appealing to Warren's supporters to switch allegiance to Sanders. Warren Associates also had talks with the Biden camp yesterday about a potential endorsement of him when or if she drops out. There's no certainty she'll endorse Sanders or Biden. She backed Hillary Clinton four years ago over Bernie. But the talks reflect the growing pressure on the senator from Massachusetts to withdraw. Some of Warren's aides say privately that they had hoped she would stay in until the next Democratic debate on March 15th. Warren would likely be the only female candidate to qualify for that debate. The Democrats are going to raise the eligibility threshold to keep Tulsi Gabbard out. And her departure from the race would leave Democrats essentially deciding between two white men in their late 70s, after the party's last two presidential nominees were an African-American man and a white woman. Bloomberg's exit from the race concluded one of the most unusual campaigns in American political history. He's pledged to employ large field staffs in six swing states during the general election, even though he's no longer a candidate. The billionaire's data operation, called Hawkfish, will also continue operating to elect Democrats up and down the ballot. Bloomberg's aides, however, have not announced whether they will take out ads in the primary campaign to help Biden or whether Bloomberg campaign staffers in upcoming primary states will work to help Biden's nomination. 
Campaign finance rules generally give self-funded candidates significant leeway to spend money as they see fit, even if the funds go to other candidates. Bloomberg also has the option of renaming or rehiring his staff as part of a separate independent group to assist Biden. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, the House yesterday passed an $8.3 billion emergency spending package to respond to the coronavirus as the U.S. death toll reached 11. The Senate could act on the measure as soon as today. Trump's expected to sign the legislation, which is more than triple the size of the White House's request from last week. The vote in the House was 415 to 2. The two said it was too much money. The political deal and Biden's wins on Super Tuesday pushed financial markets to surge on Wednesday. We'll see how they do today. The package that passed the House includes more than $3 billion for research and development on vaccines, therapeutics, and other treatments, as well as $2.2 billion for the CDC to support the response from federal, state, and local public health agencies for lab testing and infection control. The deal also includes close to a billion for medical supplies, healthcare preparedness, and community health centers. Also included is a billion in loan subsidies for small businesses. While 85% of the money in the bill will be spent domestically, there's also $1.25 billion for the State Department to assist in battling the spread of the coronavirus overseas. That will also include evacuation expenses and some humanitarian aid. In New York State, the virus spread quickly from a man to his family to a neighbor to his friends. By Wednesday afternoon, another friend, his wife, and three of their children were also infected. What that means is that in the span of 48 hours, what began as one family's medical crisis had spiraled well beyond their Westchester County home, shuttering Jewish schools and synagogues and crystallizing the virus's power to propel anxiety across a region that's among the nation's most densely populated. Nearly 300 million children right now worldwide are out of school because of the coronavirus. So far, 11 countries, plus Hong Kong and Macau, have shut down all of their schools to try to stop the spread. And here at home, America's health system is showing why it's not ready for a pandemic. Ventilators and intensive care units necessary to keep the most acutely ill patients alive are largely limited to larger hospitals and academic medical centers in the big cities. Nationwide worries are growing about a lack of hospital beds to quarantine and treat infected patients. Major medical centers are typically full even without a flood of coronavirus patients. And despite weeks of preparations, health planners continue to fret about shortages of masks and gowns for hospital staff, as well as life-saving mechanical respirators for patients with severe cases. Budget-conscious health systems don't maintain large volumes of reserve supplies just for the possibility of a pandemic. That leaves the whole system vulnerable. Federal funding for emergency preparedness and health care has been in a slow, steady decline for more than 15 years now. And The Post has launched a new pop-up newsletter to keep you updated on the spread of the coronavirus, which rounds up all of our best reporting from here domestically and overseas. Any article you click on from the email is free to read. We've lifted the paywall for this important coverage. To sign up, you can go to WashingtonPost.com slash virus newsletter. WashingtonPost.com slash virus newsletter. Number two. Chief Justice John Roberts issued a rare rebuke of a sitting member of Congress yesterday, chastising the Senate's top Democrat, Chuck Schumer, for saying at a rally outside the Supreme Court that Trump's two nominees, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, would, quote, pay the price if they vote against abortion rights. Roberts said threatening statements of this sort from the highest levels of government are not only inappropriate, but dangerous. Schumer was speaking to abortion rights supporters as the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in an important abortion case from Louisiana. 
The GOP denounced Schumer and criticized the media for what they say is a lack of outrage. Democrats demanded to know why Roberts had not spoken out last week when Trump singled out liberal justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor for attacks, or why Roberts didn't defend the federal judge that Trump has routinely denounced for overseeing the trial of the president's friend, Roger Stone. The episode underscores the partisan politics that have engulfed the fight over the judiciary, which is supposed to be the nonpartisan branch of government. With Roe v. Wade on the line, that Louisiana abortion case is probably going to end up coming down to Roberts. During oral arguments inside the chamber, the four liberals appeared convinced that the law at issue, which requires admitting privileges at nearby hospitals for abortion clinic doctors, is identical to one from Texas that the Supreme Court struck down four years ago when Anthony Kennedy was still on the court. That appeared to leave Roberts now at the court's ideological center holding the deciding fifth vote. As the case was being argued, he asked a variation of the same question to all three lawyers addressing the justices. Should the court undertake a fact-dependent state-by-state analysis when reviewing such restrictions? The question indicates that he felt he could distinguish Louisiana's law from the Texas statute. But it could also mean he agreed with challengers that similar laws were doomed because of the court's precedent from 2016. Remember, he used to talk about how important stare decisis was. Roberts was a dissenter in the Texas case and he didn't indicate what he believed was the proper answer. Among the spectators in the courtroom yesterday was Roberts's wife, Jane. Before the Chief Justice joined the court, she was the legal counsel for Feminists for Life of America, a group that opposes abortion. Number three, a woman assigned to a U.S. Special Operations Task Force in Iraq was charged with turning over the names of human informants and other highly classified data to a Lebanese man with ties to the militant group Hezbollah. The Justice Department says Miriam Thompson, 61, of Rochester, Minnesota, has been charged with one count of conspiracy and one count of delivering defense information to aid a foreign government. Prosecutors allege that she passed the information to a man in whom she had a romantic interest. She appeared in federal court in Washington yesterday after the FBI arrested her at the U.S. military facility in Erbil, Iraq, where she worked. U.S. officials say the linguist, who had top-secret clearance, began repeatedly accessing information in a Pentagon computer system that she had no need to access on December 30th. She reached 57 files concerning eight human intelligence sources, including names, photographs, personal identifying information, and background data, as well as cables sent back to Washington detailing information that they had provided. A court-authorized search of Thompson's living quarters on February 19th led to the discovery of a handwritten note in Arabic under her mattress. It contained information identifying three human sources by name and warning specific others to be tipped off that they were under U.S. government surveillance. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, March 5th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.